You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Given the easy access to technology, such as the internet and cable television, does it really matter in which part of the country you practice? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host. And with me today is Schwartz Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, Shannon Brownlee. Shannon is the author of a new book called Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Welcome to ReachMD. My pleasure. Now, Shannon, you've looked a lot at geography and the cost of medical care. Can you tell us what you've learned? Yes, there's enormous variation in the utilization of care for similar patients in different parts of the country. And we see this from data that comes from the Dartmouth Atlas, which is a compendium of data that a group of researchers at Dartmouth have been gathering over the last oh, couple of decades. And uh, give us an example. What's one of the more striking ones? Well, one of the more striking ones actually strikes home in Boise, Idaho. If you look at surgical variation, if you look at per capita rates of surgeries in different parts of the country, Boise, Idaho happens to be one of the back surgery capitals of the country. It's got a rate of back surgery, spinal fusion, and I think discectomy that is about four times what it is in many other parts of the country and at least two times what the country's average is per capita. But couldn't this be explained by the fact that uh, we're sort of outdoor rugged people here in Boise and maybe we just hurt ourselves more? You know, it might be reasonable to think that, but the difference is so large that it's hard to imagine that there are that many patients in Boise who actually are A, need back surgery, or B, are actually benefiting from it. That's sort of the more important question. But we see these kinds of variations. There are huge variations in surgical rates around the country for a whole variety of surgical procedures, including hysterectomy, tonsillectomy, back surgery, mastectomy versus lumpectomy. It's all over the map, literally. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is? This looks like it is practice variation. It looks to be that there are patterns of practice that develop in particular regions among physicians who do a particular procedure, and they are more or less aggressive, basically. Because mm-hmm. certainly in non-surgical practices of medicine, like, for example, in my business, psychiatry, we'll see the use of a certain medicine is definitely more popular in, in one area than in another, and, and our theory behind this, although not studied, is that, well, you trained under Dr. So-and-so, and and this is how he does it, and you all sort of stay close to the nest, and so that's the way you do it, where if you trained under Dr. Jones in Los Angeles, you'd have a different way of doing things. I think that's exactly right. I think that's an enormous amount of what's going on with some, particularly with surgeries, and so it'd all be fine and dandy if, if it were really benefiting patients, but we don't really have much evidence that it is. I mean, either some patients aren't getting enough of the particular procedure that, that varies, or other patients are getting too much, and it may be both. Now, you give a great example in your book about Miami compared to Minneapolis. Yes, and that's looking at a different kind of measure, which is it's a measure of, of procedures and tests and hospitalizations and days in the hospital and visits from specialists that vary not so much with sort of the way people think about how what's right, what's the right practice, but more with the supply of resources that are available in those different parts of the country. And then there, too, there's tremendous variation. If you look at Medicare utilization, for example, Minneapolis is at the low end and Miami is way at the high end. Los Angeles is at the high end. Manhattan is at the high end. Now, the argument 
usually is, well, that's because people are sicker in Miami. But when you then take patients who all have similar diseases and you look at what happens to them in different parts of the country, we still see this tremendous variation. But couldn't the difference just be due to different prices? Certainly Miami, I think, is more expensive than Minneapolis in most things. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's not so much more expensive that price can account for the variation. The variation is utilization. It's the volume, stupid, as to paraphrase the the, uh, President Clinton's campaign campaign slogan of it's the economy, stupid. It's the volume. It's utilization. So is the medical resource allocation based on supply or demand then? Well, it depends on what supply and what demand you're talking about. The utilization is driven largely by supply in the case of many, many things that we do. But the demand, you would think demand would be driven by how sick patients are. But in fact, it's not. It's other reasons that supply gets built up, like hospitals competing with each other. They invest in more CT scanners. I mean, at, at one point, Cleveland, Ohio, I think, had more, more MRIs than the entire country of Canada. It's how hospitals decide to allocate their resources in terms of relationships they have with specialists. Some hospitals have lots more specialists compared to the population of patients that they take care for, versus another hospital which says that it wants more generalists and compared to yet another hospital which simply has a lower number of total physicians overall per capita. But doesn't the availability of more specialists and maybe even more technology improve the quality of care that these hospitals deliver? We don't have any evidence that it does. And in fact, there's evidence to suggest that it increases mortality. That it increases mortality? Yes. It, it the, the best estimate made by Elliot Fisher at Dartmouth is that about 30,000 Medicare recipients die each year because of too much care, because of overtreatment. So there's a slight increase in mortality. If you look at these areas in the country where there's very, very high utilization among similar patients, you see higher mortality. Not a lot, you know, between 2 and 4%, but enough that it makes a difference. And certainly not lower mortality. Not lower mortality. Which is what we would hope for. What we would hope for, exactly. Especially those of us that are specialists. You know, and here's the thing. I think physicians know this instinctively. You, you know yourselves. You're, of all the people in the world, you are the most aware of what the risks are of care, that all of medicine carries entails some kind of risk, either risk inherent in the procedure itself or the drug itself or the fact that every hospitalization exposes a patient to error and drug mis- drug adverse drug events. So you yourselves probably don't want to be overtreated. You don't want too much care because you don't want to be exposed to the, the unnecessary risk. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is award-winning health and medical writer Shannon Brownlee, we are discussing the differences in healthcare expenditures around the country. Now, Shannon, you actually brought back some some rather vivid memories of what it was like for me a hundred years ago when I was an intern. That kind of the worst thing from an intern's perspective was if uh, your attending physician wanted an infectious disease consult because once you brought in the infectious disease specialist, that meant that you ordered every test in the world. And, of course, as an intern, you're the one that had to actually do all of that. So I think you are right. And the availability of an infectious disease specialist is an enormous 
enormous amount of what drives whether or not you're going to call one in or not. Right, right. Now, let's think about more of a global picture and comparing the United States to other Western countries. How do we look? Well, we really don't look very good. There are a number of ways we measure overall health, and unfortunately, they're all fraught with sort of confounding difficulties that make it very, very hard to compare. You're not always comparing apples to apples when you look at the United States versus Sweden, for example, or the United States versus Canada. But the World Health Organization has done the best job that it can to look at the quality of care in different countries. And it ranks the United States somewhere like 27th out of 50, or or 30, it's 37th out of 50 if, of all the OECD countries that it looked at. We're not really high on quality. And when you look at things like longevity, it's not entirely clear that we're doing so much better that we can afford to spend twice as much on medical care as per capita as, as the average OECD average. But certainly longevity is only one measure. What about quality of life when they are alive? That's another very important measure. And, and the w, WHO has started to look at these qualities, hail the, the healthy adjusted life expectancy and they've started to make those kinds of measurements. But it's really not clear that we're benefiting people by the enormous amount of care that we're delivering and the, and the enormous amount of money that we're spending. Now, it, there was a big controversy recently where one of the Republican candidates said claimed that he was so glad that he was treated for his prostate cancer in the United States because, rather than Great Britain because our survival rates are so much better. And this is based on really bad reasoning because science says, in fact, it's not clear that we're actually getting better survival rates than Great Britain is. So it's really, it's very, very tough to, to make those comparisons. But simply looking at the United States, if you take a graph from 1950 until 2000 and you look at the cost of medical care, it is going up at an exponential rate. If you look at longevity over that same period, it is inching up barely. And in fact, it may now be going down because of obesity, rates of obesity. So we're spending more and more to get less and less. And actually spending more and more, getting more and more, but less and less in terms of outcome. Yes. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. We've been discussing geographical differences in healthcare utilization with science writer Shannon Brownlee. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Doctors Digest Radio, Bridging the gap between the business of medicine and the practice of medicine. Patients are making unprecedented new demands on medical practices. They're asking for more detailed cost and quality data. They also want online access to their medical records and email contact with their healthcare providers. Many practices are finding the only way to meet such demands is to adopt new electronic information systems. This can be a costly proposition, especially for small practices. But electronic systems definitely save time for physicians and for financial staff members by approving patient flow, clinical tracking, and payment process. The pressure to go electronic is clearly growing. The 2006 Institute 
Institute on Medicine report on preventing medication errors recommended greater use of the Internet to improve doctor-patient communications and help patients get quality information about prescribed medications. The report also encouraged physicians to use electronic prescriptions by this year's end, and by 2010, all prescribers should be writing electronic prescriptions and all pharmacies should be able to receive them. Last year, America's health insurance plans added its voice to the growing chorus and issued similar recommendations to improve medical quality and safety. AHIP urged health providers to use electronic health records to give consumers real-time access to their personal health records. But recent studies show only about 20% of physicians' offices have installed the electronic record systems that are needed for electronic prescribing and for patient access to personal records. Those who've already opted for electronic record systems have seen more benefits than these in streamlining their practices. The paperless system holds patient charts, prescription records, and other important information, but can also be configured to give patients access to their records and to schedule appointments, renew prescriptions, and even have secure email contact with the physician and office staff. You've been listening to Doctors Digest Radio. To receive free access to back issues, visit us at www.doctorsdigest.net. Click on e-subscriptions and enter promo code REACHMD. Doctors Digest, your guide to practice management.